Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good evening, Koa. And if you're joining us uh, online because you're not feeling well or you might have been exposed to COVID, we're praying for you. We miss you. And uh, we totally understand because we want to keep each other safe and our community around us. Uh, If you are new with us or maybe you're visiting again and you're a familiar face to us, uh, we're in the book of Ephesians. And so we've been journeying along verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're at a really good segment of it today. Why? Because really it's about how change happens. It's how a new you gets formed. And if you think about it, in our culture, every new year, you think about a new you, don't you? Uh, You can go on Google, you can see commercials, advertisements on Facebook, everything about a a new year, a new you. We hear about it all the time. So I was doing some Googling, as one does uh, throughout the week, and I looked up, what are like the top 10 New Year's resolutions? And I'm not sure if you have any New Year's resolutions or maybe one or two. This is sort of what I found. Top 10 resolutions. Number one was lose weight. Number two was eat healthier or maybe change your diet. Uh, Number three was get more fit or more exercise. Number four, spend more time with your family, friends, or loved ones. Number five, be more aware and take care of your mental health. Number six, sort out your finances, maybe cut back on spending. Number seven, travel more, more adventures, get out more. Because of COVID, we were sort of locked in and we sort of still are now locked in. Uh, Number eight, take up a new hobby, maybe a sport or an interest. Number nine, be more environmentally friendly. And number 10, look for a new job. Um, So I'm not sure what your New Year's resolutions or if you keep New Year's resolutions, but they probably fall into one of these 10 categories that I just listed. And this passage we're going to talk about is really about how change actually happens. You know, you and I are often drawn to New Year's resolutions because there's always something that we're not pleased with about ourselves or our circumstances or our life. And so what we do is every year we lean on a resolution Hey, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to change some habits. I'm going to change my life. And so what we're wanting is some new level of of change. We want something in us to bring a happiness, right? Or or contentment. And so we seek after to achieve that change. We want to do this to make us happy. We want to avoid that to make us not happy, right? And so we seek change. We do this diet. We go to that gym or we read that book or we sleep or we work differently, whatever it is. But here's the problem, what happens with New Year's resolutions. The problem is that real change for people, it actually doesn't start with outward behavior. It actually starts with changing our inward beliefs. Real change doesn't happen from outward behavior change, but it's actually inward belief change. Because listen, here's why. Your beliefs are actually the inner fuel to lead to the outer change. And so here's what happens. You always pursue what you actually believe will satisfy you and to comfort you and to fulfill you. Like think about this past year. What did you think would bring you happiness or wholeness? You pursued it, right? And then what often happened to you? You ran into a dead end. The thing you thought would bring happiness or wholeness actually didn't. You kind of left yourself discouraged a little bit and frustrated. You always pursue though what you believe 
will bring you happiness or wholeness. But often what we believe brings those things actually doesn't. So what must happen? If we're to change, biblically speaking, we're to first change our beliefs in order to change our behavior. If we want something externally to change, then the Bible talks about this inward reorientation. And guys, one of the greatest things about Christianity is that in Christianity, you get God and the resources that he brings to bring real change and lasting change, both in our beliefs that correlate with our behavior. And that's what we all desire, right? We want some sort of change in our lives that brings us fulfillment, wholeness, and that's what our hearts desire. And so God, through Paul today, uh, tells us how this change can actually be possible. There's three things we're going to unpack from the text we just read. Three things I want us to see today. Uh, Here's how real change happens. Number one, it's by remembering your identity in Christ. It always starts with the belief. You must remember the belief that you're in Christ. Number two, we're going to see that we need to replace the old way with the new way. And this talks about your behavior, but notice how belief goes first and then you change the old way and the new way. And then last, ultimate change in this text really talks about the way we think. And so we're going to talk about renewing our minds, which again is about belief, what we think. So let's jump in the first one here as we're in 2022. We're still living in COVID. Uh, we're probably not satisfied where, where we are in our life with our job or maybe relationships. And so we're seeking change. But today I want you to see something that God can do to change either your perspective or your circumstances for your good and his glory. First thing we're gonna cover, number one, remembering your identity in Christ. Uh, the author is Paul uh, of this uh, book of the Bible, Ephesians. He's writing to a church, a very new church, just sort of like ours. It's urban and diverse, and they're just getting started. And he's saying, hey guys, remember your identity. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says this. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must, and then here's the command, you must no longer walk, meaning you must no longer live, And then he points out a people group and it can seem harsh on the surface, but bear with me and I'll get there. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now that beginning phrase here, it says to testify in the Lord. Do you see it there? Verse 17, I testify in the Lord. And what Paul's doing here is he's really adding extra weight and emphasis to what he is saying. In the very beginning, verse 17, he's like urging them, guys, to lean in and to listen and to learn how to live out the following words he's about to give. And he's reminding them, hey guys, I'm testifying to you in the Lord, meaning whatever I'm saying is actually not my words, it's God's words is what Paul is saying. So lean into what I'm about to say is what Paul's saying. So then he continues, he says, I testify to you in the Lord that you must, and he gives a command, from God, you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do. Now, this is awkward in this moment, in this setting for this church to read this, because some of the people that are in this church are Gentiles. 
you remember there's two groups that make up this one church? There's the Jews, those who believed in God from the Old Testament scriptures. And there's Gentiles, those who they did not believe in God or the ways of God from the Bible. They didn't follow the uh, judicial commands or the uh, ceremonial commands or the civil commands or sacrificial commands of the Old Testament. So you've got this new church. They both trusted in Jesus now. And now they're part of one church. And Paul's saying to a group of people that might have some Gentiles in there, It's an awkward statement. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now this is awkward, right? Because some of the people hearing this for the first time are what? They were Gentiles. But there's something interesting that happens in New Testament history. Very early on, Christians, whether they were Jews or Gentiles beforehand, they they began to not identify any longer as Jews or Gentiles These early Christians saw how the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually breaks down dividing walls between people groups because two people groups can become one family because God died for both. And they have a new culture together. That doesn't diminish their old culture, but there's a new culture. There's a new way that they can rally and care for one another. And this new church, these Jews and Gentiles, saw themselves almost like a third race, if you would. They didn't see themselves as Jews. They didn't see themselves as Gentiles. They saw themselves as the church. And so Paul is what he's saying here is he's saying to them, don't live like you used to live. Paul's not trying to be hate-filled. He's not trying to be racist against a certain group of people. He's saying, hey, do you remember how culture you used to live this way as a Gentile? Remember how they lived without God or they acted like God didn't even exist and that led to their hurt and then other relational hurt because they just sort of sought out what was good for them and they began to hurt themselves and others don't live that way. And so this is what he's encouraging here. And so what's happening here is that Paul is encouraging them to recall how they used to live. Do you remember how you used to think and believe and live before Christ? Guys, this is really easy for me. I only became a Christian when I was 20 and I'm 33 right now. Before Christ, the way of my thinking was all self-centered. How could I satisfy myself and with food or with women or sexual pleasure or with finances? It was always about me. Now, I'm not saying that people who are not Christians can't have morality. I'm not saying that, but often there's an inward self-leaning focus. And there very much was that for me. And so what Paul's doing with this church, like I'm doing with you, is I'm recalling how I used to live and how I used to think and believe. And those beliefs resulted in behaviors. And so for a moment, here's how Paul recalls how they used to live. Look at verse 18. He's saying, hey, Gentiles, this is how you used to live. You were darkened in your understanding, meaning what you thought would fulfill you doesn't fulfill you, what you thought would bring you happiness or joy or comfort or this relationship or having kids or finances or getting that degree would satisfy, but you were darkened. Those things actually don't satisfy you. You remember that? Is what he's saying to this church. He's saying you were alienated from the life of God. He says, because of the ignorance or the lack of information of God that was in you, you had a hardened heart. Because you had a hardened heart, you didn't want more information about God. Verse 19, he says, do you remember that you were callous? You were hardened to the ways of God. And you had given yourself up therefore then to sensuality or you were greedy in every kind of impurity. 
So in our modern terms, here's what Paul is doing. He's like doing the 10-year challenge that you've seen on social media, right? Paul's kind of putting the old picture up. This is how you used to live. You were darkened in your thinking. You were sort of ignorant in the ways of God. You were callous and you just pursued life for you and you thought that would give you freedom, but that was actually the chains on your life. And so Paul's holding up a picture. This is how you used to be and look at you now. And guys, even for us today, we can change that word Gentiles there just to Americans, can't we? We can change that to Westerners, can't we? Whatever label you want to put on there, we have very little difficulty bringing verses 17 to 19 to our contemporary situation. They serve to us like a mirror and we see ourselves all too well in this passage. Guys, often as Christians, we can have darkened understanding of what brings the lasting love or fulfillment that we want. And so we talked last Sunday, right, about all kinds of doors we try to open up to find our value and security, right? We said, man, I just don't feel secure in my, my job or maybe I'll get fired, so I need to store up a lot of money. And so I gotta look at my accounts all the time to make sure I've got enough and I gotta put my money in stocks and I gotta make sure I'm, I'm secure here. Or some of us, we're, we're trying to enter into the doorway of, of love. I, I need love to feel valued or, or I need to be intimate with someone. And I, I need to feel close and I need a place where I can call home relationally. So I'm gonna try to enter into as many relationships with people as possible. And I can't stay single. I gotta be in a relationship or it can be whatever the case for you. And so we're darkened in our understanding and we seek to try to alienate ourselves from this life in God. And we walk out and what we think is, understanding, but it's actually what the Bible calls ignorance. We begin to harden our heart against God. We become callous. And Paul's saying that this is how humanity often lives. And rather than just calling people out and saying you're a sinner or the terrible things, he's not just calling us out. We're learning that he's doing what? He's calling us in. He's calling us into a better way. What we think often brings freedom is actually what brings us chains and heartache. So there's a better way to live than for us to keep ourselves busy with work or entertainment to death with TV. And so we just numb ourselves with those things. So we don't think we are, have a darkened understanding thinking those things can help us relax from the hardships of life. We turn to diversions like drinking or social media to, to keep our minds ignorant and our hearts darkened to the life of fulfillment that God is inviting us in to. It's through this passage that God reveals to us actually the key steps to change. Right here in this passage, the key steps to change. And here's how he outlines that. I want you to see this for a moment, okay? There's sort of three Bs, but stay with me here. Our behavior, our outward behavior is really a byproduct of our beliefs. Every time we think about outward behavior is just a byproduct of our inward beliefs. So if your beliefs are right and they're good and they're godly, then so will our behavior. And so see what I mean. He says this, he says, before Christ, your minds were futile and your understanding was darkened. Meaning that if you believed in your mind, things that led to emptiness like futility and darkness of sin, if you believed in certain things would give you comfort and hope, then you would act out thinking this relationship, this person this endeavor of happiness would give me life. And the byproduct of believing that is verse 18. It's alienation from God. It's, it's ignorance. It's hardness of heart. It's, it's callousness. And so what's that lead us into? It's behavior. They've given themselves, the verse says, up to sensuality, 
greediness and every practice to impurity. Do you see how this works? Guys, it's very important for us as Christians. If we want lasting change, if we want to find fulfillment, then your belief set has to change where those things are found. Does that make sense? And too often, we're tricked into thinking that this door or this trap door or this relationship, this person, this step or accomplishment in life would finally get me satisfaction. But guys, you can look at those who have reached those steps and reach that accomplishment that you want, inwardly, there's an emptiness there. And God is trying to rescue us from that sort of pursuit where we can find life in him. Or here's how one pastor said it. What you give your attention to is the person you become. The mind is like the portal to the soul. So what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. So this bodes well then, according to the Bible, for followers of Jesus, who can give the bulk of their attention to God and all that it's good and and beautiful and true in this world and in his word. But it doesn't bode well for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety, and emotionally charged drama, or to the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip or Netflix or video games or social media. Whatever you give yourself to creates sort of like a Facebook-like algorithm. Now, for some, I've got some like aunts and cousins where I'm like, why does your post always show up at the top? I've looked at you like four times tops, but now you're in the algorithm and I just can't avoid it anymore. Your minds work like this Facebook algorithm. Whatever you view or think about will just keep coming up as a first thought over and over again until you fill it with something new. You become, listen, you become what you behold. And you behold what you believe will comfort and satisfy you. So you must renew your beliefs in the steadfast word of God. Does that make sense? That's a great long sort of paragraph quote, but it's so key. I want to say it again. Listen, you become what you behold and you behold what you believe will comfort and satisfy you. So guys, that's why we say at our church that only Christ can satisfy. It's very simple. It's him and his ways that bring flourishing, health and wholeness in him. Not saying that if you believe in God, you never get sick. I'm not saying that. But what we're saying is what ultimately satisfies us is not healing It's not a person. It's not a job. It's not a place in life. And those pursuits are not bad in of themselves, but they'll never comfort you. They'll never satisfy you. And the pursuit of those doesn't lead to freedom. It actually leads to your imprisonment and hurt and pain because those things are not filled with God himself. That's what Paul is getting us to see here. And he's bringing us sort of on a memory lane, showing us the past. Remember the 10-year challenge. He's showing us, this is where you were, Gentiles, but this is not where we need to head. So by implication,
But the cost is really high for our wholeness and our relationships with others. We give ourselves to all kinds of diversions for the life that God really wants us to have. We give ourselves to sports, don't we? Or movies and sitcoms to avoid just thinking. Social media is scrolling just constantly because we can't sleep. Our self-centeredness really alienates us from this life of flourishing with God. And so we don't often acknowledge our need for God, nor do we have time for Him. And if we think about Him at all, our thoughts are often derailed by a lesser love, thinking that that will satisfy us. We fall sensitivity to God and fellowship with Him, and so we give ourselves over to another sensitivity, which is sensuality. Trying through pleasure, and especially through sexual avenues, to recover the intimacy for which we were created in God for, but we seek it outside of God. When we get caught up in an increasing downward spiral of just serving ourselves and wherever our desires are leading us, because hear me out, pleasure and enjoyment are not illegitimate things. But when we become those things the focus of our life, they can distort and corrupt us because they were never, never designed to fulfill us. Human beings were made with a higher calling to not be satisfied with creation, but to be satisfied with the creator. So desires, my friends, are not bad. Comforts of this world like sleep and food and romance relationships, they aren't bad. They just aren't ultimate. And so if you try to satisfy or comfort yourself with things that are lesser than God, you'll always be heartbroken. You'll always be left on empty. And you'll always have to be running back to those things again and you'll never satisfy you. Guys, the Bible's very clear about what this is. He's showing you that you don't walk like you used to. So we ask you, call or call online, where do you feel like you keep walking towards that you think will satisfy you? Like, are you hoping to get funny to the end of your degree, thinking there's just this wonderful life at the very end of this degree, thinking that if I just get freedom and I get money, then finally I'll be satisfied. It's the end of your internship. If you're thinking, I just can't wait to get that point, or I gotta get married, once I got a spouse, then finally I feel this love and intimacy. Once I get this part of my career, if you're always thinking that satisfaction comes next, you'll never get it now. Does that make sense? This is what Paul is reminding us. This is what God is reminding us of this. You can't walk that way anymore. Let's not return to things that never gave us a return of true, lasting satisfaction. Because you weren't designed for it. You weren't created for it. So it won't last for you. Does that make sense? It's a very easy way to think about it, but that's exactly what's happening here. Another way to say it is we are restless until we find our rest in God. We are restless until we find our rest in God. Our culture thinks it needs self-expression and self-satisfaction, but what our culture really is being invited to by God is self-surrender and self-attachment to God. Within whom all things find their joy and their hope in Him. So guys, we don't find our, our value or worth or excitement in expressing ourselves or self-satisfying. It's actually self-attachment and self-surrender to God's plans. It's very against the way we feel. Because again, we were, we were more attached to a relationship with God. 
So Paul's reminding us that we are darkened in our understanding. We're so particular. We need to know. So it's following what we feel. Thinking that we can solve what we feel with need fulfillment. But God's saying, no, 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 let me reorient your heart, your beliefs, your mind. So you can find what your heart's desire in me. So it's pretty clear. We're talking about a lot of our church because we're trying to go part of the gospel that we're broken here, but we're making hope in Jesus in the path he has for our flourishing. And that's exactly what Paul said in verse 20. Take a look at it again. Verse 20. He says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Now, if you're familiar with sort of like this ancient Greek literature, which I don't think any of us are, including myself, uh, this is a really weird way of saying this. You would not find this in any other Greek literature that you learned a person like this. They would always say, this is not the way you learn math or learn some language or learn agriculture. You would never say you learn a person like this. And what Paul's trying to say that you can know Christ personally. And when you know him personally, you believe in him personally, you follow him personally, then you begin to walk away from the things that you thought once would satisfy you. So we said, hey Gentile, hey Jew, it's Churcher. And we'd say today, hey American, hey Bostonian, hey friend that moved you from a different city. This is the way you learn Christ. And this is verse 21. You hear about him, you are taught him, and If I can share for a brief moment, uh, before Christ, my, my whole world was just built around relationships with people. I wanted always to be in a dating relationship. I always wanted to express my sexuality through those relationships. I always wanted to live that way because I felt like I found intimacy that way. I had to be in a dating relationship. I had to be in a sexual relationship in that way. And I thought that if I could just be like that, then I'll finally feel loved valued, served, cared for, comforted, and that was the epitome of life. But what happens in and out of all those relationships, I would consume the other person in my heart. They couldn't bear the weight of my idol of deep intimacy, full serving, ultimate love. They couldn't meet all my needs. No creation ever can, ever could. And so in the gospel, I found this. I found in Christ that there's a person who can deeply connect with the longings of my heart that I thought a relationship could. I thought a person could ultimately know me and care for me and endure with me in all of my hardships, that this person would come alongside of me and be my long-term companion, that they would be the intimacy my heart longed for to be known and cared and served, that they would support me no matter what. And what I'm finding is that that's how the Bible talks about God because that's who he is. The more my belief changed in what I needed, the less I looked for it in relationships with others. And I can stand before you now, not as a completely perfect and whole person, but I can tell you that I'm no longer bound from having to jump in one relationship to the next. I'm in a relationship with my wife and we've been together 10 years. If you knew me in middle school or high school, you would think that's a miracle that that could even happen for a person like me. If you realize that I was just in a sexual relationship with just my wife and not other people or pornography, you and minds would be blown, middle school and high school. But what happened? In the gospel, God introduced me to himself and what I wanted in an intimacy or a relationship, a person that would be with me and serve me and care for me and have my best interest, that would be with me at low times, that would know me deeply and never leave me. This This is Jesus. And this is what he died so that I could enter into. 
My friends, this is what this passage is talking about, this new identity. We learn Christ this way through the gospel. He's reminding the church, and so I'm reminding you today, this is how we find our life. It's in Jesus. We talked last week. He's the door that our hearts have been searching to open, to find the treasure room of comfort, joy, and fulfillment. It's only found through him as the door because it's only found in him as the source, our satisfaction, our fulfillment in him. So what's Paul doing in this first thing? He's reminding us of this reality. We're no longer Gentiles. You're no longer who you were in middle school and high school. If you're in Christ and you trusted in his death for your sins, then you are new and therefore walk like you're new. Remember your identity. Remember where your comfort, satisfaction, fulfillment come from. Number two, verse 20, this talks about replacing the old way with the new way. Verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, living the ways that you used to. He says, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and was corrupt through deceitful desires. And then verse 24, he says, put on the new self. So question, how do you put off your old self? The old patterns where you try to find comfort and joy and fulfillment. That's what we all struggle with, right? We're like, man, I don't want to overeat and overdrink. I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I want to be stable. But we keep kind of folding back into the old ways, don't we? That's our, that's our struggle. That's our default. And so we're encouraged to put on the new self. But how can we do it, right? Desires and deceit are really powerful, are we just supposed to just lay them aside easily, putting them off and putting them on? They clearly call for us to act, but it's not merely a human activity. All is done in union with Christ, the one to whom we are joined to and who teaches us and enables us by the Holy Spirit for renewal. This text emphasizes both God's activity and our responsibility. We put on what he created us for. So there's two Christian schools of camp when we think about our desires and how do we put them off? And it's either you starve your desires or you just satisfy your desires. And often if you're in accountability groups or a DNA group, a part of our church and you're confessing sin, we just sort of talk about, hey, stop it. You just sort of starve the desire that you have that God has said not to do or live in. You just say, stop it. And so you just sort of starve, go cold turkey. You just sort of starve whatever the desire you have. But the other school of thought, I think more the Bible's leading us to, is you actually have to satisfy the desires that you have. But you satisfy them in the way God designed them to be satisfied for. Um, I invited one time um, to speak to our students. I was a student pastor for seven years. We had a big student conference we helped host. And so I invited this speaker, Jacka Hill Perry, to come and talk to our students. And so she gave this analogy really about how to be satisfied. And I thought it was really fitting. If any of you guys gone to uh, the Olive Garden, like maybe before your taste buds matured, right? Olive Garden was like your thing. Maybe you still like Olive Garden. That was not a dig on you. Uh, but they always bring out that basket of bread. And you're like, this is so stinking Good. And so what happens though is that you eat all of this bread, right? And then when your meal comes, what's happened to you? You're not hungry anymore. When dessert comes, you're not really hungry anymore. When your parents are, or your friends were like, hey, do you want to eat some more tonight? You're like, I'm just not hungry because I had 37 baskets of garlic bread. I'm not hungry anymore. And do you see how that connects? 
if you're satisfied on the bread of life, when another meal comes in front of you to tempt you, you are no longer hungry for it anymore. And I thought that analogy was so, so good. So we don't just starve the desires we have in our heart. We feed them. But you feed them with what you find in the gospel in Christ. How he designed our sexuality to play out, how he designed our appetites, our longings for security and comfort. We don't try to find them in creation. We try to find them in the creator and what he promises, what he says, where he's leading us. That's where we find them. So how do you put off old desires? By putting on new You satisfy yourself with the bread of life. That's Jesus' very point in John 6. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. I am the olive garden bread, right? This is his illustration, not mine. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. This concept is just simply called Christian hedonism. We know the concept of hedonism, right? Just satisfy yourself at all cost. Christian hedonism is yes, satisfy yourself in the Savior, the only place you can actually be satisfied. So you live according to his principles that are for your flourishing. You live out his way that we're supposed to live out sexuality or the comfort or success. You live in that vein of things and you feed the desires that are in your heart. And then you find yourself in a life of flourishing and you find yourself even in terrible situations and circumstances or even clinical depression, you find yourself in a place of hope because you fed the desire that God put in you and you fed it in him. Christian hedonism put off the old self and its sinful desires by satisfying them in Christ and following his ways for our flourishing and fulfillment. So what things do you need to put off? What things in your life always raise up some sort of desire in you, some appetite? What is that? Don't answer out loud, that could be awkward for you. Do that in community group or DNA group, right? But what are those things that are desires that keep leading you back to that same type of sin, that same type of thinking? Don't try to just starve them out. Say, God, this is what I, this is what I long for. I, I want to be married really bad. And so I'm hoping for intimacy here. God, I, I don't know what to do with my sexuality. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this way about myself or I'm confused about my gender or whatever the case is. God, would you bring some clarity here? I, I want to fulfill how I am in your way. So what do I need to put off in old thinking? But what do I need to believe about you or the way of life or the way of flourishing? What what is that that you struggle with? And I want to encourage you, even if you feel one way, I promise you, if you subject yourself to how Christ says to be fulfilled in him, then you'll find what you're longing for. That's the great news of Christianity. It's not just some belief or rule system. The beliefs affect your behavior. And if you believe rightly the way God's leading us, then our behavior ends up to lead us towards fulfillment or happiness or freedom that's found in him. Do you see how it works? Very clear. Last thing here is renewing your mind. Renew your mind. Verse 24 says this, and to put on the new self. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In this passage, Paul's primary concern is not just with a list of specific sins. His concern is that we have a distortion and a disorientation of our mind. And so that's why he says that we're 
futile in our thinking and we're darkened in our understanding and we're ignorant and we also have a hardening of, of heart and we continue to lust and we want more because we're not satisfied. We have these deceitful desires showing us. Do, do you see where it begins? Paul's saying we have a distorted mind. So this, this text really views sin as a malfunction of our, of our thoughts and our mind. So therefore, what? Outward sins are not just the cause of the problem. They're the result. The problem lies in our, in our mind and in mental choices we make against God because we don't believe things rightly about him and the path he has for our flourishing. It always starts in our mind. So if the Gentile's core problem is a distorted mind, the solution can only be renewing that mind, right? Which is exactly Paul's point here. And he uses three images to achieve that contrast. This instruction of the mind to be renewed, to change our clothes, and to live in the new creation that God has rebirthed in us by faith in Jesus. So therefore, guys, what must we do? We must daily be renewed with the gospel. Not just what God did for us to make us his family by his death, but what did his death do to make us valuable and beloved and secured? What did the gospel do? So what we must do to renew our minds is to analyze our life and analyze the gospel and find how we can have this fulfillment in him. The mind and the heart are like the control panel of the body where your life is ordered. And we must be continually made conscious of God and the gospel and not ourself. We must take time to think in communion with God and to reflect and meditate. And without attention to the interior life, no renewing or reordering will happen. That's long-term change for you. So at our church, guys, that's why we're doing a Bible reading plan. We're going through 260 of the foundational passages in the Bible to do what? To renew our mind, to help us to believe again where satisfaction and comfort, security, hope is found. Where is intimacy really found? And so we reorder our minds. And so daily we have a Slack channel and we've been messaging each other about what we're finding, what we're being renewed with. And therefore, when we're sharing that with someone else, their faith is renewed. And so therefore they begin to follow the path of what's flourishing and good that God has designed for them. So guys, we're to renew our minds. We're to put on something new. And what is that? It's God's word. It's God's thought. Another way we do this is scripture memory. So one time a week, there's a scripture memory that you're encouraged to memorize. Again, it, you're not like getting extra bonus points with God or our church by memorizing him. But what you're doing is you're putting your mind on what's true and beautiful and right. And then what you begin to put your mind on, you begin to believe. If you believe it, you begin to behold it. If you behold it, you begin to live out of it. And that's why you must renew the mind because the mind is set on default of self. But if you can think about God and you lose yourself to that, you actually find yourself better in, in him. So Bible reading plan and scripture memory, prayer, journaling, rest and reading other Christian books. That's why for our members, every member gathering we come to, I give you the gift of books, Christian books that talk about who God is and what it means for your daily life because we're to be renewed this way. So here's how we'll end, guys. Listen, Renewing your mind reorients your heart. And when you renew your mind, you reorient your heart towards God, what happens? You actually are released. 
You're released to find your fulfillment in Christ in his ways. So guys, next week, uh, we're gonna have a, a guest, um, guest pastor come and teach for us. And I'll be out of town with my family. We've got a fundraising support trip we go on and there's a conference I'm speaking on for some students. And so this is part two of the message next week where there's about six specific things that we're to put off and put on because of what we struggle with culturally. So we're gonna unpack the specifics of that next week. And so this week was really just the framework of you must renew your mind that reorients your heart and that releases you to actually find what your heart desires in the first place. And this is all found in the gospel. So let's pray together.